Hi, I'm Karen Derricades, and you're listening to We Make Media, a podcast about how the culture we produce shapes media and how that goes both ways. I'm here with Maya Ben-David, a video performance artist whose work mixes cosplay and fan fiction and popular cultural tropes. Her performances are hilarious, but never disingenuous in the way that they portray and participate in fan culture, making them at once familiar and unlike anything out there. I've asked her to chat with me today about her art making process and her experiences of creating art in the age of the internet. Maya, thank you so much for talking to me today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to describe um, your work for listeners. There will be there'll be lots of uh, links in the in the show notes. So definitely um, check out Maya's stuff. But uh, one that uh, I mean, the Air Canada what is the short form? The Air Canada Gal? Yeah. ACG? <laughs> yeah, ACG. I like how they all have this like kind of comic book uh, short acronym or whatever. So tell us a bit about that work because that kind of involves all of it, right? The costume, the performing, the kind of popular culture, the video. Mm-hmm. So Air Canada Gal is my first character I've ever made. Uh, I made her about six years ago, I think. And I still think that that morph suit that I used for her costume is like my best fitted and I love it the most. I might just feel really uh, sentimental about the costume. So basically that she is a anthropomorphic airplane that represents Air Canada, their airline. Um, but in later narratives, she actually gets fired from Air Canada in a series that I'm going to be doing where I fire all my characters. But throughout all of my practice, she goes through different life stages she dates Spider-Man for a little bit. Uh, she eats him. <laughs> She's kind of like a um, pinup girl for Air Canada, where she does like fashionable photo shoots. She's kind of a villain in some of my narratives. Uh, she she definitely changes when I change and mm. she's my probably my most consistent character even though I have a lot of other um, characters in my universe and they all live they all live in the same universe yeah in your head I mean they're, in my they're head. not separate <laughs> they could potentially run into each other they have run into each other before so Air Canada Gal has played a baseball game with Pocket Good Life which is an anthropomorphic good life fitness bag <laughs> <laughs> so great. And so for Eric and I got, like, did you make that costume? What's the, the process for producing that? So I made it and um, my mom helped me sew it, which was really great. Sometimes she helps me make my costumes. It really depends on what it is. Sometimes I get help. Like I made a enormous centaur puppet costume before where mm. I walk and I have centaur legs that walk with me. Um, and in that way, I needed to get help from puppeteers because I, it was really difficult to figure out how to make the legs move when I move. So it really depends on how how busy or how difficult the costume is, uh, whether I get help on with it or not. Why why Air Canada? So I became really interested in anthropomorphic airplanes when I saw this incredible fan art by Walter Sash many, many years ago. And I just kept the picture up on my desktop for a really long time. I loved that image. I can send it to you and you you can include it. Um, And I realized that the community was kind of starting to pick up and people were uh, making anthropomorphic airplanes for each country. And I thought that I would make a Canadian one because it would be funny. But she's not necessarily a hero or representing Air Canada. Mm. She might even be kind of a villain. 
what were the first things you were doing in the fan fiction kind of world? Like, was it drawings or participating in conversations in those communities? Or what did your entry into the fan fiction world look like? When I was a kid, I didn't go on the internet as much. I had a computer in my room, but I was afraid of it because I watched a scary episode where a computer gets taken over by a virus and like eats you. Mm. So I didn't have a computer, but me and my friends would uh, draw sexy fairies from like <laughs> uh, animations that we've seen. And we do that religiously every single day. And I'd have like my favorite sexy fairies that I had like stored away. And we, I was also obsessed with Pokemon and we had a bunch of Pokemon figurines and every single day we'd get together and my friend had a, um, a really large Barbie uh, playhouse and we take apart all the different elements of the uh, playhouse because there's so much furniture and we make separate houses with the furniture and then we'd put our Pokemon into the playhouse and make up all these narratives with the different Pokemon families. So that was my earliest versions of fan fiction. Amazing. And how old were you when you were doing that? I did it for a lot of years. So maybe six to much older. I, I always love drawing beautiful fairies. <laughs> right. I still do. <laughs> Your performances, how, like how scripted are they? Or are you, are you improvising a lot of this stuff? It really depends. So if I'm just talking to the camera, like I'm on Instagram and I'm, I'm talking to the camera about something, I'll usually have an idea and it'll, it'll kind of be a shtick about something and I'll, I'll turn it on and like look at my face and just start talking and it'll start evolving from there. But if it's an actual film or video that I'm making, I'll, I'll make a script and then improvise from the script I've made already. And how much of that is a collaborative sport? Um, because a lot of internet artists, of course, just need themselves in the computer. But obviously you're producing um, and documenting and, you know, working with coders and, and, other, and other folks. Are you planning it out and then seeking out a team or are, you, are there folks you always work with? I think it's a bit of both. Actually, this is fun to talk about because I never get to talk about all the other people that I bring into the work that I make. If it's a small production, then I'll film it, film it myself. I have like a green screen in my room, so I can just, and I have all these lights, so I can just set it up myself. Um, if I have a performance at a gallery or something like that, I'll get my friend to always document it and film it. I get um, this person named Jamie, Jamie McMillan. And he always films it for me because it's really, really good to get your stuff documented and filmed. Uh, the biggest thing I've noticed about my career is that it doesn't matter how many people come to your art show. It matters if you have good documentation for it and then people watch the amazing video of you at your art show. And do you remix that content? So you've got all that archived footage of the different performances and stuff. Do you do you revisit that and pull from that and make and make new things with yeah, your own? Definitely. Right. Because I've got, I've got all this footage of all my different characters and it's really easy. If I make it high production, it's really easy to take it and make animations out of it or add it or make it into its own different video. I often get people to help me with music. So I get my, my brother just helped me with a um, video I'm making right now. He made the background music because YouTubers always have like subtle background music just to cover up audio sound, like room sound. Right. And it was really, really fun to work with my brother. I made a really big production called Snake Girls Hyperbolic Time Chamber, where I had my, my biggest team ever. And I had um, 
uh, director of photography. I had actors and I had a makeup and prosthetics artist. And that was that was really nice to have. It's, it's a lot easier when you have a team. Mm-hmm. And was that the one you did with Nuit, at Nuit Blanche or is that at a different performance? So I did that at Nuit Blanche and that was with a team. And then I applied for a grant and I received it, which was amazing, where I made it into a video. Very cool. What was that like? Tell me a bit about the the Nuit Blanche versus a, a smaller gallery. So, so what was it like to participate in Nuit Blanche mm-hmm, as opposed yeah, to a like gallery? In terms of endurance, you know, it, it, Nuit Blanche is an interesting evening. Yes. I once did a kind of an interactive installation at the Gladstone for Nuit Blanche. And um, obviously 12 hours of interaction was like really exhausting. And really anything yeah. after 2.30 a.m. was just a bunch of jerks. <laughs> like, yes, uh, I completely agree. So what, what was your experience? Where were you? So I was in the Arcturix building. It's that's like a, a athletic store on Queen Street, and they let us have their storefront for the performance. So I was really grateful that we had glass in between our performance and the the public, mm. because the public started getting more and more rowdy throughout the night. And we would do so. We would do a half an hour performance and half an hour break, and a half an hour performance, half an hour break. And then the the audience was just belligerent <laughs> by the end. But luckily, we had a barrier between them. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked it. I didn't like the fact that I had to um, perform so much, but it did make my performance better the more I did it. Right. And it, I liked the fact that it was repetitive because then I had to work on that conceptually. So what we did is I'm Snake Girl and I'm battling a Nazi physician. And every single time I lose... I keep losing every performance at the end. And so then we had to keep going back in time each performance. And then at the end, in the last performance, then we finally win. Hmm. So it was nice to make the repetitiveness part of the narrative. Oh, that's very interesting in the context of internet art and loops, you know? like So Mm -hmm. you were looping back, but uh, in the sense of like, yeah, starting again, not just because it was the next half hour, but because you had lost and you needed to go back and try again. Yeah. And how much did that vary throughout the performance? We would change it. I think we would change our wrestling moves. So I I collaborated with this um, former backyard wrestling champion named uh, Brandon Doty. What is a backyard wrestling champion? So so backyard wrestling is kind of like an informal wrestling league. (laughs) And it was really, really big when he was growing up. And um, he even got onto TV stations and he was really popular and the performance was a little bit based off of him and his like his life of being a backyard wrestling champion. And sorry, is this kind of wrestling like wrestling the sport like or like WWE type? Like, is there a character? Is he playing? Are, are the people yes. who are doing backyard wrestling? It's character driven. Ah, interesting. Mm-hmm. I actually have footage of his old performances. And in my film, he is a former backyard wrestling champion. And we show his old clips and he reminisces about it. And he's he's a, a janitor at, at the Nazi laboratory. And later in the narrative, he becomes the referee. And it's like this triumphant moment of him reclaiming his past of being a um, wrestling champion. Very interesting. And you did that video stuff after. So you had a bunch of the footage from the performance stuff and then you created kind of a larger docu documentary kind of thing around it. So I filmed everything. So I had a documentary footage of everything, but then um, I got the grant to make it into its own film. The biggest thing you gain when you perform a lot is you just get bravery 
and then you can feel comfortable and then you can have fun. And I don't have a lot of bravery with performing because I didn't perform when I was a child. It's more something I've done in, as an adult. So I have to work on my bravery all the time. Right. And just thinking about, I'm doing this for the footage, then there just happens to be an audience. Does that help you with your bravery? Well, how do you, where do you get your bravery then to do that? I really like making people laugh when I perform because it makes me feel like a star. <laughs> so I'll definitely put in a lot of jokes into my performances and like get high off of the interaction that I have with the audience. And yeah, I, I try my best to be dramatic and myself and sassy when I perform. So that way I feel like I'm just talking to my camera and doing a funny Instagram video and there's not so much weight in having a beautiful, meticulous performance. Well, yeah, so you, I, you're hilarious. Like, and where did you. that comedy, comedy muscle come from? Like, is that, did you just learn that all on your own? Were you watching others? Like, how did, how did you develop that? I was really unfunny when I was a kid. <laughs> I was really, really shy and I had crazy anxiety. But I think I started off trying to make jokes when I was in elementary school and I would just try and be random and I don't think it worked as a joke and then for I tried to audience. be no not not for that audience <laughs> and then I tried to be silly and energetic and that didn't work as much as well and then I tried to be ditzy and I think that worked. People laughed at that, but they didn't think that they're laughing. They thought they were laughing at me, but I'm like, no, I'm doing a shtick. I'm mm. like, I'm, I'm playing a character and you're laughing because I made you laugh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so that was kind of the progression. And my brother is really, really funny. And he's, he has a very like trolly humor. He used to troll, um, skateboarding forums and everybody would know he was a skateboarder and everybody would know him on the skateboarding forums and he was this huge troll and it was he was kind of iconic on it and I think I was influenced by his humor as well as my big sister's humor and my mom they're all everybody's pretty funny in my family but it took me a long time to become more courageous and to try out different humor systems our world doesn't tend to they can have a very condescending uh, attitude or a very um, outsider attitude of just like, it's, you know, it's funny to look at costume cosplay. It's, it's funny to look at uh, fan fiction. Mm -hmm. But again, it's like from this, like looking at it, laughing at it, like observing this like ridiculous uh, part of culture as opposed to. Yeah. How random, how wild. Yeah. 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 What a bunch of weirdos, which is a pretty funny thing for artists. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I think it depends on the artist. Uh, that's definitely been my experience, but I also know lots of really, really weird artists right now that are very much working in that. And I've, I've been in weird small shows that have really embraced that kind of thing. It's just not, I'm just not in like big galleries because there isn't, I'm not sellable really. Mm. Well, and that's always been the case with, I mean, performance art in general. Have you ever performed or done anything like with like fully within the like fan fiction and cosplay world, like at like a cosplay convention or something like that or a LARP like event or something or like. I've definitely gone to cosplay conventions and uh, comic cons before. I liked them, I, but I didn't. My costumes are always really ugly compared to cosplayers. So <laughs> I think if, if I wore my, some of my costumes now, there'd be a bit of interest, but there wasn't back then when I used to go. 
I did get invited to a LARP convention in Croatia last year, and it was about a bunch of artists that actually work in role play. And there were some really, really interesting and good performances, and that felt really um, good to be in- included in. Your work talks about or explores, um, yeah, that relationship with aesthetic and, and also, like, sexism, right? So, like, you're saying, like, something beautiful versus something weird or whatever, or, like, what the female character... Um, sexy fairies fits in probably to that world, <laughs> right? But, like, snake girl, um, yeah. less so, right? Yeah, she's a bit uglier. So I have a completely different experience with my art on YouTube and Vimeo and Instagram and my website, obviously. On Instagram, I've cultivated an audience that knows me specifically for my art practice and they've seen it evolve. And they're also weird nerds as well who also draw sexy fairies. So it's it's pretty easy for me to be myself on Instagram. On YouTube, I post the same videos and people are just coming at it who have no context of any of this and it's very shocking to them. They're like, like lots of comments like, how did I get to this part of the internet? I've had too much of the internet for today. What is this? Is this a fetish thing? I don't understand this. They're kind of talking about me in the comment section like I'm not there. Because mm. the videos feel randomly... They almost feel like they're ran- they're a randomly produced scary phenomenon, and it doesn't feel like there's an author behind it because it's so weird. So it it's not it's not incredibly humanizing. But I'm working to humanize my YouTube channel and normalize it and make it more universal, so that average people who do stumble upon it are like, "Haha, I get it," a bit more. And what about Vimeo? I just share all my art videos on Vimeo and there isn't as much of a community, but there's just artists on that. So it's the same people that are on Instagram, probably less. So I only get positive feedback on Vimeo. Right. I mean, I think negative feedback is good too, but I definitely am interacting with a completely different audience on YouTube. Yeah. Well, it's interesting about YouTube that I noticed watching some of your videos there versus uh, Vimeo. Vimeo is, um, yeah, it's much more like yeah. an art screening or or just like like seeing something on someone's website in the sense that it, uh, you know, doesn't have all the noise and all the like recommendations and all the, you know, it's not as populated by the audience, you know? Yeah. They also don't have an algorithm for picking up copyrighted footage. So if I took a couple of seconds from a Pokemon song and put it in my video... YouTube will get that right away and send me a notification, be like, we can't monetize this. Whereas Vimeo is like, sure, (laughs) bring it in. They don't have any, they don't have any algorithm. Although I don't think Vimeo is like the king of all alternative streaming because I, I don't post on Vimeo anymore because they make you pay. I've, I've uploaded so much. I, I think I haven't uploaded that much, but I have over 10 videos and now I have to pay to get Vimeo Plus, which I hate. Mm. So so I don't want to upload any more on there. So now I have to move more on YouTube. And that means I have to get people to understand my work better on YouTube now. Interesting. Okay, so you hate it for the for the interfacing or just because you don't want to pay? Because, yeah, I don't have the money to pay yeah. for Vimeo Plus. Can you take stuff down and put other stuff up? I don't want to. Yeah. I, like, no, yeah. I, it's not, I don't have any, I don't have any small things that I don't need on Vimeo. And right. I have sentimental videos that I don't even have available to the public. Right. So I don't want to delete any of it. Right. 
That is really interesting. And do they give you um, analytics on audience? Yeah. Yeah, they do. What kind of, what are you seeing from behind the scenes from those three audiences in terms of how they interact with your content? I think I have more men than women that watch my videos. I have people from young 20s to 40s watching my videos. It's That's the main age bracket. I can see the countries that are looking at my videos and it's it's mostly where I've where I've shown my art or where I'm living. YouTube, I haven't looked at the algorithm as much because um, I'm not I'm not monetizable yet. So I'm still trying to get that. And what do you have to do to get that? What does that mean? You need a thousand subscribers. Okay. And you need a certain amount of watch time per year. So I'm still trying to get that. Wow. Okay. And that will open me up to a bigger audience and be able to make money off of YouTube. Right. It's a lot though, but I'm trying. Yeah. One thing that was interesting looking at your work on YouTube, because it curates it and suggests other things, right? Based Mm -hmm. on keywords, you know, based on other things, it doesn't necessarily get irony or aesthetics or like where things really fit in culturally. Yeah. So after your four leaf clover hunting video, the next suggested video is is like, you know, a 20 minute video on how to press your cloves like, like yeah. in a book or whatever. So I thought that was uh, really interesting in terms of the possibilities of all these different kind of cultural worlds that you include yourself in and therefore how that content is taken and put into these different communities. Yeah, it would almost be different if I had a certain like school of thought that I was playing off of in my videos. Like um, I have a friend named Sam and he does a lot of left tube videos, which is like uh, left leaning YouTube videos about contemporary topics and the the community is really strong and they all recommend each other's videos and if you click one they'll suggest another one that's in the same like stream of thought and they talk about similar things so that community kind of builds off of each other same thing if you are looking up like jordan peterson you might be funneled into more right-wing politics videos whereas like my video i don't <laughs> there's no like a similar avenue to send people. So I want to ask you about fair use and, and copyright. Yeah, I love talking about this. Yeah, me too. I mean, collage and, you know, anything internet art, like this is, you know, a huge part of it. Um, and also like how that might affect then the things that you produce if the platform is needed, right? I mean, we have to go to these platforms because that's where the audiences are, right? I mean, you put them up on your website and, and isn't that lovely, <laughs> like, but, um, <laughs> we, you know, you got to get people to the website, of course. So therefore, artists um, are putting their stuff where the audience is because you got to meet your audience where they are at. Um, but then how does that then affect our ability to do whatever we want? Yeah, I think about this all the time and I'm specifically thinking about it now because I'm not using Vimeo anymore. So YouTube is booking me on all of my transgressions Mm. with fair use. And now I have to go into my YouTube videos and anything that's appropriated from another video, I have to slow it down and change the pitch and cut it up a lot so that it doesn't get detected. Or I've been doing this thing where I get my brother to make like an acoustic or artistic version of that song. Like I wanted to have a, a Zelda song so he he made like a guitar version of it and I put that in my video and that won't be caught by YouTube. 
but I have to find all these ways to slip around it. And they also make you feel really guilty. I, I met up with a lawyer because I wanted to get some information on like, how can I, mm. what is fair use? And I was saying like, isn't it kind of awesome that artists can kind of just work off of each other and remix everything. And he was like, no, I, I don't think it's awesome. And <laughs> that makes sense. I mean, he's working with artists that don't want their, their he, he's working with music artists that don't want their music stolen. But I think that like remixing culture is a way of appreciating it and not culture, um, like medium culture is a way of appreciating it you know, using a bit of a song and then remixing it and then adding something else as you're making your own new composition. I mean, it's interesting how people don't have the language to, to talk about how power is, you know, everything within that conversation. Yes, I know. So you've got platforms like Spotify, <laughs> you know, that are corporations, right, that are profiting from the content that individuals like Instagram uh, included, right? Mm-hmm. And no one's talking about how they're exploiting artists um, and how they're profiting off of that and how they're not um, paying for the amount of time and eyeballs and stuff that are coming to those platforms because of the creatives that are that are contributing their content to those spaces. Yeah. So there's something coercive there, right? Like they corral the audiences. And so we have to go there to meet the audiences, you know, and they're like these new gatekeepers um, and they mm-hmm. don't pay. And they keep their algorithms a secret. So we don't know how they work. And sometimes they change them and com- screw yeah. up your entire practice and your way of living, right? Like your way of making yeah. money. Yet people want to get upset with artists who are sharing laterally or or upwards, right? Like if you're if you're remixing Disney or whatever, like that should be allowed. Like that's culture. That's everybody's, right? Yeah, I, I think about that all the time. And then, and then what about the the small channel, the small artist that just takes a bit of a Disney song or something like that and makes something or makes a parody of it? What it doesn't make sense why we should crack down so hard on that one small person. And it's really expensive to. I investigated licensing using a little bit of a song and it could be up to or in more than $2,000 just to use a little bit of a clip of a song. And now they do this thing where every year you have to repurchase the license. They don't, you don't just have it forever. Yeah. So if I wanted to show one of my videos in a big festival, I'd have to pay that license and it'd be way more than I, than I can afford. I'd ever make off of that work or piece of art. Right. Also, people don't pirate anymore. They don't pirate things, and that I that makes me mad. Right. Why? What do you well, mean by pirating, too? Because I think that sometimes, for many people, like Gen Zers or whatever, like they're, they're, they're put in positions where they can get uh, set up for failure or set up for being sued or set up for being bitten because there's like, okay, you can do this from a young age, um, interact with the content through like, an Osmo plaything or like a fan fi- you know, like a draw in my style online or apps where you can draw like, like the Disney or whatever, mm-hmm. draw right on the Disney. Um, but then as mm-hmm. soon as you take that out of their space or even parody, like, if, you know, just make the content offensive to them by the, by the way that they define it, then all of a sudden you're in trouble. And that seems like a very dangerous setup, but even just the concept of pirating, like of a world before a subscription based content libraries, mm-hmm. you know? So, I've nannied for a long time and kids don't pirate anymore or teens don't pirate anymore because they have, like you said, subscription-based systems of getting content. But if they, if I tell them, oh, this is a really great movie you should watch and they check and it's not on Netflix, they're not going to watch it. Mm. 
And so they're paying for this service, their parents are paying for the service, or people are paying for the service, where they only get a small amount of content. And then now that there's a whole bunch of other different subscription um, systems like Disney, and there's Crunchyroll for anime, and there's a whole bunch of different Treasure Apple, Remember the other ones. Prime, yeah, Apple. Amazon, yeah. So that means, yeah, Hulu, you need to be paying for so many different subscriptions just to get something that you want to watch, whereas you can actually find it online if you go to the Pirate Bay or something like that. And like kids don't know how to access that. I knew because my big brother taught me when I was a kid. But I you know I don't have the money to pay for all these different subscriptions. And I yeah, I, I don't want to just watch what's on Netflix because that's really limiting. And you should be able to expose yourself and see other forms of media that aren't just what you pay for on Netflix. It's like this pool is very, very shallow, right? Like it doesn't go past the, you know, like it doesn't yet go into the 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 only play, place you can find like movies from the 80s is like cable television paying for the 80s movies channel or whatever you know yeah i mean it's convenient in a world of overwhelm because you're like i don't want to carry it i don't want to host it i don't want to have it all on my i don't want to have 20 hard drives like let somebody else do it let it be on the cloud yeah but yeah then you don't actually have any of it none of it you actually have yeah and they're deciding what's popular and what is art and they're they're making all of these massive moves and what popular culture is because that's what everybody is watching on this one platform. And that's really controlling. People who are remixing culture don't often fit into those same paradigms. They're often at odds with the, with the art world uh, in general, right? Because mm-hmm. the art world has created its... They're their own gatekeepers. You know, they're their own Spotify or they're their own... You know what I mean? Like... Yeah, they are. We're going to control your relationship with the audience and we're going to help create value or pricing around how we're going to sell this. But because of it, yes, you're going to have to make it rare and you can't give it away for free online and you can't, you know, like... I find that so frustrating. Video art distributors always have been saying that. Um, I think they're, they might be loosening up, um, but they used to tell me that I can't put my things online because it makes it less rare. But then all of my audience knows about my art and I get shows because somebody watched my YouTube video or they saw it on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So I have to be the one that advertises. No one else is advertising for me. You, you have this great video of you versus John Raffman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that video. The video is so great. Thank you. Um, so who, who is he and why do you need to, to take him down? <laughs> well, he's already taken down. Right. John Raffman is a <laughs> post-internet artist. And for a long time, he was finding footage that people would make online where they where they found like interesting like anime clips or video game clips. And they'd compile them and they'd make archives. And John Raffman would be kind of like a anthropologist and find those interesting content pieces and then put them into his art. But he got in a lot of trouble because he didn't give credit to the people that he took the content from. And I think the biggest problem is that he was so big. He was a really big high level artist and he was getting paid for galleries for using that content that other people had already curated into their own thing. And that's kind of why I had my feud with him. But I think he has, I think he has actually changed his art style now because I don't think he's done that recently. 
so I think he has changed. And I, I think also he was a product of what a lot of artists were doing at that time, where they were just reflecting on, hey, I grew up watching anime, or I grew up watching these cartoons or playing these video games all the time, or I uh, am exploring their internet and I'm finding all these weird things and I think that they're special or, or weird or interesting, and I'm just going to put them in an art show. But the problem was they didn't change anything enough and it, it kind of felt like they were taking the credit for the work that they were putting in and making money off of. They're just like, oh, like, let me put this art frame around this and let yeah. us all look at this. And now it's a new thing. Yeah. But they didn't actually make it. Like, somebody made that drawing that they have in an art gallery, but that person's not getting any money. Yeah. And the power, right? I mean, because, again, it's not like it's Disney, right? Like, it's... It's uh... it's some person on DeviantArt <laughs> yeah. making a drawing of something they that they find personal and they're giving it to their audience that also likes that and then you're an artist and you're putting it in a gallery and then some rich person is coming and being like whoa so weird yeah and he's doing it because he can right i mean and many people do it not just him but 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 because they can as opposed to um because those people those deviant artists uh don't have lawyers and copyright trolls and 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 all that kind of stuff right you talked about other people a little earlier, like who else is doing stuff like you? We talked about being able to be a part of some shows and stuff where people were occupying the same strange intersections between these these spaces. There's these two sisters who make the most incredible art ever. I think their handles are Fluff Lord and Marta, but they make really scary and weird art. They also make animations with each other, so they're super technically talented and like narratively talented, but they also make these wild, amazing art pieces that are very gothic, magical looking. I But I've had the privilege of being in art shows with them and I always feel so happy. I think there definitely is a big group of artists that are making really cool things right now and they definitely deserve to be more highlighted. Right, and they're sharing them mostly, they're, they're online as well. Yeah, they have, they're having the same issues. They're dealing with the same same kind of. Yeah, like I know that uh, Fluff Lord makes like Dragon Ball Z <laughs> drawings and scary animations, and that's definitely copyright. But they're making it really beautiful and making it their own. Hmm. And a lot of internet artists I know are doing a similar, working similarly, but but changing it enough and and making it their own style. Just wanted to play this little quote from you to, as a transition into the next part of our conversation because I think it's just really brilliant. What about when you're not a loser anymore? But you only get to not be a loser anymore if you keep making things. But then you could possibly become a loser again when you stop making things. Life is a work of art. <laughs> it's wonderful to be able to connect directly with people around the world through these platforms. Mm-hmm. But it's it's there's a lot of pressure to be prolific Keep producing. Yeah, to be producing constantly. And we're talking about, again, pr- producing stuff that takes time and is not paid. But when you're really talking about it in the context of work that is connected to community, that can be even scarier in terms of, uh, yeah, what happens when when you when you're not producing. Right. So tell me about yeah your own relationship or experience of the pressure to produce or yeah we also didn't it's talk definitely... about facebook but you did 
start most of your stuff there, right? So Facebook is very different than than these other platforms, I think, you know? I definitely did start on Facebook and I still miss that a lot, my relationship with Facebook a lot. I have always felt a lot of pressure to be really prolific and people have told me I've been prolific and I'm like, ah, ha, ha, thank you. It's like always been a really big compliment to me because it's something I've really striven for. But I do think it's not particularly healthy because it makes you prioritize small, small micro art pieces as opposed to one big one that you work over a long period of time, but you can't share a lot about it. Now you want to share as much as possible. So you always want to make micro art pieces. And I definitely have felt the pressure to make smaller artworks or poppier looking artworks that are more attractive in Instagram so that I can keep having my engagement up. When I used to um, post on Facebook, I would have this notebook that I would bring around with me everywhere and I would just write weird thoughts that I have mm. and I would post like five times a day on Facebook and everybody did and it was this huge community and we all just played off, played off of each other and it was really, really fun and I liked it a lot and we all built our community off of that. But then Facebook kind of died and we kind of we lost that community so now it's all dispersed on other different platforms but for a long time, like even building up my career, I think people know me because they saw me all the time online. But I've been trying to scale back lately because I don't think it's healthy for me to feel like I always need to strive for likes. I like how in Canada you can't see how many likes you get. Mm -hmm. That was huge for me. I, I used to avoid some people's posts because I wouldn't want to see how many likes they got. But now I'm just like, good for you. Right. Because I don't feel competitive with them now. Yeah, it is amazing and, how much that actually works psychologically, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And with that reduced, I'm like, oh, I feel so much better now. Mm -hmm. But I, I have for a long time, I've been chasing the likes and I don't think it's particularly healthy. So I've been trying to reduce that and trying to be aware of what I do to other people by posting all the time that people might feel bad about themselves if they see like, oh, Maya's doing my is busy right now and doing something and I'm not busy like I, I don't want people to feel like that so when I advertise my art shows I try not to just make it like hey I'm having an art show at this place come to it I try and make it like it's my character and they're talking to you and they do a funny shtick and they're like hey if you want you can check out I'm, I'm going to be doing this art thing so that way at least they're they're getting a piece of art out of me telling them that I'm going to be in something as opposed to just me making them feel bad and being a straight out advertisement. Interesting. I go on TikTok sometimes because I'm trying to become like famous on TikTok mm. because I feel like it's the next biggest platform. But I definitely feel so envious about people who can just make fast charismatic videos constantly on TikTok and I just, I don't know how they do it. And it actually makes me feel bad. So I'm like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. I don't know. Yeah. Well, tell me about TikTok. Because, yeah, one of my questions, too, that I've been asking everybody is like, yeah, is there any particular platform, piece of technology, hardware, software, new thing that's happening right now that's really changing how you do your work or how you feel about your work or whatever it is? So is that TikTok for you? Yeah, it's definitely TikTok and YouTube for me. So on Instagram, I used to make videos where I would talk to the camera like you've seen that video that you just that clip that you played for me was from Instagram 
And my humor, I talk a little bit slowly and I make awkward or deliberate pauses. And I'm a little bit, it's, it's more like a spectacle of what is this character. But on TikTok, um, I've noticed that that system doesn't work because it's really slow and you have to look like you're in on the joke all the time. So you have to be like, you can't have any ums in your delivery and you have to be like, hi, so this happened and it's so crazy. I can't believe you have to be on right away and you have to um, be charismatic and, and engaging with the camera in a different way than how I was making videos before. And I'm just trying to find a way where I can figure out which pre-existing videos I have that could work in that format or how to structure my speaking differently for that platform. I, I don't always, I don't feel like I need to change my art and my life for a platform. Yeah. But I am aware that being electric on a certain platform can be really magical and can connect you with people and can elevate you and make you produce work that you didn't you didn't previously before like for example how i really changed how i spoke when i went on facebook all the time right and how i would be thinking about different funny posts throughout my entire day so that i could deliver it to facebook so i, I still want to have that open-mindedness for tiktok so i'm trying to work on that and for youtube right now i have all this filming stuff behind me because i'm making an intro video for my youtube where I'm like, hi, welcome to my channel. And I'm wearing like a barmaid costume. So I'm like, it's like someone's walking into like my tavern. Right. And I'm like, you might be a bit confused. You may, you might want some context about all these videos. How about, uh, would you like an academic context? And I have me like explaining it in an academic way. Would you like a sentimental context? Would you like an edgelord explanation? <laughs> and that way people, when they, if they land on my page and they're like, what? They can... Because I know that people, more people are going to come from a from more random places than just my art uh, audience. So I need to have a landing page for them to give them context so that they can receive my videos better. But also, I have been asking everybody this little lightning round of <laughs> sure, it's um, a lightning round. Well, it's just like questions about basically like how you use telecommunication. Do uh, you mean like in my art? No, like just in like the way that like you communicate with people in general or whatever. Like oh, gifts or emojis. Um, you know how when you're when you're chatting with somebody, you can use the stickers. Mm -hmm. uh, I I like those because there's some really cute ones. So emojis or stickers. Email or DMs. DMs. Phone call or text message. Phone call. You like phone calls? Yeah. Your phone just randomly rings. That, that's okay with you? Or you just mean like you like a schedule, like scheduled or random, I guess is the follow up to that. Oh, okay. Um, if someone just going to, wants to just speak to me and like, I, I'd really prefer a text message right. than a phone call, but I'm going to have a lengthy conversation with somebody I want to, or like a nice conversation. I want to have it over the phone. Right. And is that because yeah. you don't like typing on your particular phone or just because you just want to, you want to hear the person? I like the leisureliness of talking on the phone. I like how it feels like an advanced form of, I'm like, I'm more socializing now. So interesting. And I don't want to like, if I'm texting somebody, I'm, I'm tempted to like go on my phone and peruse other things, which I don't want to do. Um, video chat or voice note? Video chat. Twitter or Instagram or Instagram. Facebook. Uh, I mean, I, 
all of them for different purposes. Right. Yeah. What do you do on Twitter? Uh, I just post funny thoughts on Twitter that I would have maybe posted on Facebook previously. When did you stop using the, the Facebook? I think that was, I think now it was two years ago. And you just found, did the community change or you just found that there was just crickets? Crickets. There was less and less engagement. Right. Mm-hmm. All right, Maya. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, chatting with me today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really fun interview. I can't wait to listen to the other ones. Yay. I hope you all listen to all every episode as well. Thanks for listening and join me next time when I speak with James Kerr, a.k.a. Scorpion Dagger, about how he uses Renaissance paintings as a palette for his hilarious gifts and how augmented reality is helping him take his animations off the screen and bring them into the world. Until then, stay creative and do be artists. <laughs>